is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Listeners, Eleanor and I are back for season two, episode 11, Francis Eleanor Trollope. We hope you enjoyed the NAFSA bonus episode last month, um, and thank you for patiently waiting for this one. And I think I explained in the precursor episode to this entire series that my thesis is partly about Francis Eleanor Trollope and Francis Milton Trollope, so this is one of the people that I've been working really closely on for the last two years, so hopefully I'm able to shed some light on what she does. I actually had the re- weird realisation recently that I'm probably the world expert in this woman, which speaks more to the fact that no one cares about her than my expertise. But it's so good that you do care about her and so cool that you're in the position to sort of bring her back into the public awareness. It was a really weird moment when I was just like, I know more about this woman than like, there's like three other people who work on her consistently. Mm-hmm as a kind of, as far as I can tell, sideline, not to diss their work because it's incredible and it's been really useful to me. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. So let's take a tour around the world in Frances Eleanor Trollope's lifetime. In 1835, French zoologist Félix Dujardin identifies protoplasm, the viscous translucent substance common to all forms of life. In 1836, Charles Dickens begins monthly serialization of the Pickwick Papers. In 1837, Alexander Pushkin dies from a stomach wound received in a duel with his brother-in-law, Georges Dantes. In 1838, an Irish packet steamer, the Sirius, becomes the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, completing the journey to New York in 19 days. Brunel's Great Western, a wooden paddle steamer, arrives in New York the day after the Sirius, with the record for an Atlantic crossing already reduced to 15 days. In 1839, Edgar Allan Poe publishes Fall of the House of Usher. In 1840, Napoleon's remains are brought to Paris for burial in Les Invalides. In 1842, Robert Browning publishes The Pied Piper of Hamelin, which is illustrated by Kate Greenaway. Uh, and I actually have a later copy of that. It's really cool to look at. Ah, oh, that's really cool. Uh, one of the courses that I teach is children's reading, and I'm always, I feel like I feature Kate Greenaway and Randolph Caldercott a bit too much, but it's. Kate Greenaway is, is amazing. <laughs> yeah. In 1843, Swiss naturalist. Louis Agassiz completes his pioneering poisson fossil, or fossil fish, classifying more than 1,500 categories. In 1848, the Fox sisters, Maggie and Katie, help launch the 19th century spiritualist movement by responding to a series of otherworldly rappings and knockings in their New York home. In 1850, about 50,000 people travel the Oregon Trail to settle in the West. Apparently, they weren't daunted by the Donner Party's experience a few years earlier. In 1852, London physician Peter Marc Roger publishes his Thesaurus of English Words and Phrases. You probably have one of his thesauri in your home or office today. I have one directly behind me as I speak. Mm. In 
1855, Jamaican-born nurse Mary Seacole sets up her own British hotel in the Crimea to provide food and nursing for soldiers in need. In 1863, Samuel Clemens uses the pseudonym Mark Twain for the first time on an article in Virginia City's Territorial Enterprise. In 1867, barbed wire is patented by Lucian Smith of Kent, Ohio, USA. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire kills 200, destroys over four square miles of Chicago buildings, and also the original Emancipation Proclamation document. In 1876, in Deadwood, South Dakota, James Butler, Wild Bill Hickok, playing poker in Carman's saloon, is shot dead from behind by Jack Crooked Nose McCall for no apparent reason. Hickok reportedly held a pair of aces and a pair of eights, which became known as the Dead Man's Hand. I think it's just really fascinating that everyone has to have a nickname during that period in the Wild West. I feel a bit sorry for Carl Mann. He's not got one. Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Also, Wild Bill's name isn't even William. No. Just... <laughs> like, Crooked Nose is pretty straightforward to see where that came from, but Wild Bill is yeah. a mystery. Maybe it's his middle name. Could be. In 1880, Henry Draper takes the first photograph of the Orion Nebula. In 1882, the first string of Christmas tree lights is created by Thomas Edison. In 1889, the Pemberton Medicine Company, later the Coca-Cola Company, is incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia. In 1895, German physicist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen becomes the first person to observe x-rays. In 1901, Loop the Loop Centrifugal Railroad roller coaster was patented by Ed Prescott. In 1905, Alberta and Saskatchewan become the 8th and 9th Canadian provinces. In 1908, the first horror movie, an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, premieres in Chicago. In 1913, the British House of Commons accepts home rule for Ireland. We might talk a bit more about this later, but I feel like Francis Eleanor Turner and Trollope Prince Eleanor Trollope would not like that fact. <laughs> mm, interesting. So, our subject today was born Francis Eleanor Ternan and was an intrepid Victorian scribbler who knew how to make an entrance. She arrived in this world sometime in August 1835 on a paddle steamer in Delaware Bay. Her parents, both in the theater business, were on tour in America at the time. Um, and Frances Eleanor was their first child of four total, um, three of whom survived, all girls. Uh, I was kind of scandalized to learn that Frances Eleanor does not have her own page on the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Um, so I've turned to Orlando, um, which I can never remember what that stands for off the top. I'm not sure it's an acronym. I think it might be a Virginia Woolf reference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, I'm going to just look up the full title. So yeah. I've turned to Orlando, Women's Writing in the British Isles from the Beginnings to the Present, which is this really cool digital uh, resource um, for most of the information that I'm providing to you today. And according to Orlando, Frances Eleanor's mother was Frances Eleanor Jarman, a well-known and respected actress and singer who was recognized for her Shakespearean roles. And her father, Thomas Turnin, was an Irish actor and theater manager who was apparently, quote, jealous and conceited, end quote. Yeah, as you say, quite different representations. Um, so William Charles McCready, who is probably one of the most well-known and well-respected actors of the time, he keeps diaries and he mentions both of Frances Eleanor's parents at different points. And of Thomas, he says, I do not like Mr. Turnin's mode of behavior. 
I do not think this person in his private capacity will ever shed luster on the theatrical profession. He seems to me opinionated, jealous, and of course, little-minded. Of course. Of course. He could have questioned the fact that Thomas Lawler's turn-in was little-minded. But he has a super different opinion, both of Francis Senior, Francis's mum, and um, Francis Eleanor herself. Also, she is a very confusing figure because she goes from having the exact same name as her mother to having pretty much the exact same name as her mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. It's, it just makes life quite difficult. So I'll, I'm going to say Francis Senior for the mum. So she, on the other hand, was pretty much well thought of all round. There's this really interesting anecdote in Oxbury's dramatic biography about this story about how Francis Senior is at the stage door one night after she'd appeared in a play. And this guy arrives, tells her that he has a curicle, curicle? I believe, I think that's a type of carriage. So he's got a curicle and horses outside and wants to escort her to his noble cousin's house. Um, Francis Senior is there with her mum and basically says, um, no, that's not going to happen. I've got other places to go. And it's later found out that the noble cousin was not in town at the time. Ooh. So basically this guy was going to try and kidnap her. Wow. But that's, yeah. So that story seems to have circulated and given Francis Senior a reputation for purity, which to me it sounds more like she was, A, she was quite savvy, but she was also quite lucky. But mm. props to her, regardless. So Francis Eleanor's grandma, um, Francis Senior's mum, was actually also an actor and she had met Francis's, Francis Eleanor's grandfather on the theatrical circuit in York, where he was a prompter and left. I think he might have left his first wife for her. There's a bit of scandal there. So Frances Eleanor herself acts as a child, and so do both of her sisters. So she has two sisters. There's Maria and Ellen. I can never remember which way around they're born. So she and both, I, I think Ellen might be the second sister and Maria's the youngest. But it could be the other way around. <laughs> I think I was just reading that Ellen was the youngest, maybe, but I, I'm not sure about that. I can actually take a second and fact check myself <laughs> yeah it says uh maria the middle sister uh the youngest ellen turnin on the or- on orlando yeah so i have handy the only other well the only existing book that really has much in detail about the family which is claire tomlin's the invisible woman the story of francis's sister ellen Definitely tell me when she was born, hopefully. I know it probably doesn't matter much in the long run, but I just... No, it's fast. It's good to know. Yeah. Let's see. Here we go. I can't actually find it off the top of my head. Maybe I'll have to slice it in later. I'm not sure it particularly matters that much, as I say. Oh, yeah, Ellen's the youngest. So it's Francis, Maria, then Ellen. I found it just after I gave up. (laughs) That's how it always goes, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so all three daughters act on the stage as children. Um, As you mentioned earlier, there was suspicion that there was also a son. I don't know if it's ever confirmed, Mm. but they think that there was also a son who died in when he was quite young. Frances actually goes, I think she's six years old when she first goes on the stage. Wow. 
I noticed that they were supposedly billed as infant phenomena, which seems like a widespread practice for child actors at that time. Yeah, it seems like Francis is some kind of child acting, like theatrical child prodigy. She's actually five. Yeah. Okay. No, she'll she'll be four. Wow. She makes her first appearance on the stage on the 27th of January, 1840. Oh, wow. So she is four and a half. Um, I was just struck because I recently read Nic- Nicholas Nickleby, and of course there's the, the infant phenomenon in, in that, but I don't know if it was like, had he met the Turnin family at that point, or was it just a practice to call child actors phenomena? Um. What year is Nicholas Nickleby? I should know, but don't let me see. I, it's one of his. I think it's like his second or third. It's like so. It's in the early forties, I think. I was going to say because he meets the Turnans in fifty-seven, so I think it's just a okay. coincidence. Yeah, it was serialized from thirty-eight to thirty-nine. But it's really interesting the fact that infant phenomena are kind of. I want to say more acceptable, but there's something where it's okay for a child to be on the stage, but as soon as you become a woman, it becomes kind of scandalous. And there's this mm-hmm. suggestion that it's akin to sex work to be on your on the stage and kind of sell your body in that different format. Yeah, it sounds like uh, sounds like Frances Eleanor was pretty successful as a child actor. Maybe the Macaulay Culkin of her day. <laughs> So MacReady mentions her in his diary several times. On December 3rd, 1845, he records that after the play sent for Mrs. Turner and asked to see her little gifted girl who I saw was in the theatre, a very sweet child. Obviously, he doesn't mention which um, which of the daughters it is, but I'm kind of guessing from context that it is Frances because she's 10 at this point. It just seems more likely to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, because there's a... I think if she were younger, she would have been called an infant, or I mean, it's possible because they like infant kind of spans yeah. a lot longer back then. Yeah, I suspect that would be the case. So, this really, I mean, you kind of referenced it earlier, but there's not a lot known about her childhood. Um, mm. So, I've mentioned before on the podcast that I did a research trip to the States over the summer, and a large part of that was trying to find all of her letters that I could to fill in some of those blanks. So one of the letters I found that was quite interesting, in March 1886, she writes to her cousin, Richard Spofford, um, and she says that she needs her birth certificate for business purposes. I can't work out what these business purposes would be, but for some reason she needs her birth certificate. Mm -hmm. And before seeing that letter, I only knew that she was born in August 1835 because everyone just says she was born sometime in August 1835. Um, And now I have the very vital and useful information that Frances was a Leo and not a Virgo like me because she was born on August 17th. Hmm. Um, And because I'm a very cool and respectable academic, I have made Frances's birth chart and I think we discussed putting it on uh, Patreon. Yes, we will do that. (laughs) But yeah, it's just, uh, you know, a bit more information. It's good to have that extra. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really frustrated that none of the sources listed her date of birth, which is actually really common, um, like her specific yeah. date of birth. So she's technically a U.S. citizen. Yeah, she's born in 
I mean, in the same letter, she says that she's baptized in St. Stephen's Church in Philly, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So she is. So if you're in Philadelphia, listeners, go see if you can scope out. I don't know if it still exists. Now I need to find out. I had a quick Google, and I think I found the one that she... She basically, she says to her cousin Richard, she's like, I think I remember my mum saying I was baptized in St. Stephen's Church. Is there such a church in Philadelphia? If there is, can you see if they have my birth certificate? Hmm. I mean, there is one that comes up, so, and it looks, it says it was founded in 1823, so odds are that this is the one. (laughs) Yeah, it's the big Episcopalian one, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Sounds, I'm pretty sure that'll be it. Very cool. So we are going to have to just skip big chunks because there are big chunks that we don't know anything about. Yes. But we do know that in December of 1846, Thomas Turnin died in Bethnal Green Lunatic Asylum, where he had been an inmate for two years. And the cause of death seems to have been paralysis caused by stage three syphilis. Um, so if you're squeamish at all, I would stop listening for a couple of seconds because uh, I have <laughs> studied human osteology and have some something kind of gross to say next. Um, <laughs> okay, so if, if you're still listening, stage three syphilis is a very rough way to go for one kind of striking reason. Uh, way back in the day when I took my undergrad human osteology class, we had access to and worked with the skulls of people who had died of syphilis. And at that stage, the bacteria literally eat into your skull. They leave these patterns of erosion behind that are beautiful. But also, if you think about it, just um, like living with that happening to you would have been painful and like drive you to distraction levels of painful. Anyway, that's my gross um, was an anthropology minor factoid for today. Yeah, I think I knew it was not pleasant. But I didn't know it was quite that. It's like a Dante-esque levels of unpleasant. <laughs> I'm just trying to find some extra facts. But um... so basically, I don't. <laughs> I don't have specific years, but Frances Eleanor retires from the stage when she's still relatively young. She decides that the actress life is not for her, and she's not going to pursue the family profession. And she instead decides that she's going to try to become an opera singer. And I don't know, I have some suspicions about whether an opera singer was a um, kind of a more respectable um, profession for young women. Interesting. I don't know. It's not so much compared to actresses, because I just always remember that in uh, George Eliot's Daniel Deronda, his mum has been an opera singer, and that's considered pretty risque, but maybe not quite as much as being a theatre actress or a stage actress. The only other thing I can think of is in um, 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 George Dumarie's Trilby, the opera singer. Um, I don't want to do spoilers. Anyway, so there's an opera singer in that, and she's moved up from being a model for artists. Uh, so it's like, I think, yeah, like maybe slightly more esteemed, but still eh, kind of middling in terms of Victorian propriety. Yeah, so it's not exactly the best but it's possibly more respectable than a stage actress so i actually found when francis retires from the stage she comes up with this poem which i will add into the i'll add into the stage notes but i'll just read it through now so she 
performs her own monologue farewell. She says, For your past kindness, which my thoughts enshrine, your generous patronage of me and mine, my fervent gratitude shall through life's length grow with my growth and strengthen with my strength. And trust me, dearest patrons, the fond theme of my day musings and my nightly dream shall be that blessings may your wishes crown. Blithe be your lives and prosperous your town. May the full tide of commerce hither flow, brisk be its trade and merry the keel row. And now farewell, my patrons and my friends, for here the drama of my childhood ends. Let it but end to recommence again, a second part, but of a higher strain. The smiles that early woke the youthful flame, and after times the actress yet may claim. And let it soothe this moment's deep regret, I go to learn, but never to forget. Huh. And apparently that was printed up in the, the Chronicle after she read that aloud. I can't folk out quite how uh, old she would have been at the time. I think she's probably about 15, 16 when this happened. Hmm. Interesting. There's something about the Victorians. Uh, they, like many modern teenagers, loved writing poetry, <laughs> but um, it's, it was like a habit that they kept up with yeah. past the angst of <laughs> um, being <Teen> of puberty. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, by all accounts, she was a pretty successful actress as a child, and it sounds like she was... There were some stats I read about the amount she made per night, and it was pretty impressive. Um, mm. Sorry, I was being a bit glib earlier when I said she was kind of the Macaulay Culkin of the Victorian age, but I do get the impression she was pretty well regarded within the profession. But then she decides that she wants to become an opera singer instead, maybe a more, as I said, more proper profession for a young lady, rather than whereas being an actress was fine for a child. Um, mm -hmm. And she wants to go and study to become an opera singer in Italy, which I may have got a bit ahead of ourselves because we want to talk about 1857 first. Yeah, one, one notable acting experience. So we'll kind of just jump back because this has um, a connection to our very first episode, actually. Um, so in August of 1857, on the 21st, um, Frances Eleanor and both of her sisters and mother performed with Dickens in Wilkie Collins' The Frozen Deep, which opened at the new Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Um, Frances didn't perform, but her two sisters and her mother did. Oh, okay. Is this from Orlando? Yeah. Well, I mean, they only have the information that's been made available. Think, yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Well, yeah. So one of the one of the really cool things that I saw, actually, while I was in the States, um, the New York Morgan Library have the, some of the playbills for the Frozen Deep. So I was able to see that, mm. which is how I... But that's another really interesting insight into the way that actresses were seen, because this had originally been a play that they put on with gentlemen and kind of lady amateurs mm -hmm. in Dickens' Tavistock House Theatre at his, his home. But when they went to take it to the free trade hall, they thought, oh, we can't expose these genteel ladies to the stage. We're going to have to get some professionals in. Ooh. Which is when the Turnans enter the, enter the picture. Fascinating. So is this when, when Dickens met um, Ellen, or was this a little later? No, this is the moment that Dickens meets Ellen, and it's the really... Uh... I really would recommend Frances isn't in it very much, but they made a film of Claire Tomlin's The Invisible Woman, and it opens with the meeting at the Frozen Deep, which is really evocative. Yeah, this is when they meet. And she's 18, and he is... How old would he be at this point? He's at least in his 40s. Yeah, he's he's getting up there. Yeah. 
I think it's Maria's role was originally going to be played by Dickens's daughter, Katie. And then Katie couldn't or wasn't able to because it was being on the professional stage. Hmm. But still, they're in... I mean, that means she's maybe younger than his daughter, which is no judgment. Everyone's an adult, technically, but... (sighs) Yeah. 57. He would have been 45. (laughs) And in the Victorian period, that's elderly. (laughs) Uh, It's a big difference from 45 today. Maybe it's a family trait to like older men. Mm. I mean, it's a Victorian. It's a Victorian trait. Like so much yeah. of the literature, it's yeah, young women marrying much older men, which is the same in Hollywood today. So you know, we're still Victorian, basically. Yeah, we can't criticize it too much. But so, um, Frances decides that she wants to go and learn to be an opera singer and go and study to do that in Italy. And Dickens writes her letters of introductions to a few different people, one of whom is Francis Milton Trollope. So I can't find any evidence that they met off the back of this letter, but it's an interesting um, little tidbit that... I don't know what I'm going to say. But it's an interesting connection between the three. But it seems like her goal to become an opera singer sort of took her into um like choppy financial area maybe if she's if she's uh contemplating becoming a governess like almost right away or is this always her plan to support herself by being a governess while she studies the opera um i think it's a couple of years before she ends up becoming the governess that she wants to become an opera singer okay i I seem to remember she had a go at having some shows as an opera singer in London and it didn't go quite according mm. to plan. Mm. So she goes from being sort of the star of the stage to a governess, which is pretty bleak life trajectory by <laughs> Victorian standards. Yeah, it's supposed to be the other, the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. But it worked out really well for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, so she becomes the governess to Thomas Adolphus Trollope's 12-year-old daughter, Beatrice Trollope, um, which is pronounced Biche, or her nickname is Biche, which apparently is the Italian way of saying it. I was saying bice for a long time until some really kind person put in the footnotes that it was pronounced Biche. Um, Because Biche's mother, Theodosia Garrow Trollope, who was a really interesting figure herself, a poet and journalist she died and then Frances became the governess I think she died when Biche was 12-ish or thereabouts yeah 10 or 12 maybe I can't remember we said we said this in episode 10 yeah we did (laughs) it's just been a long summer (laughs) oh yeah because we did a whole episode about Theodosia Tom and Theodosia yeah yeah completely lost yeah it has been a long summer uh, this is what happens. This is what happens in the last year of your of your PhD. Just yeah, so you know, listeners, writing up brain. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at the same time, it seems that Frances Eleanor is testing out her skills as a writer, and on the twenty fifth of August, eighteen sixty six. 
she publishes her first novel, Aunt Margaret's Trouble, pseudonymously as, quote, a new writer. Yeah, and this is actually another instance of um, Dickens possibly helping out his kind of sister-in-law because it's published in All the Year Round, <gasps> which is Dickens's the magazine that Dickens edits. And apparently... Tomlin kind of tracks down a lot of this information and it seems like Dickens paid her from his own personal account to keep her name off the books. Interesting. Yeah, it's quite interesting the kind of the lengths that he'll go to to keep the name Turnin or even later Trollope off his books because there's this in I think it was 2014 a researcher called Jeremy Parrott found what were basically they were Dickens's own copies of the volumes of all the year round. And he's written the name next to every single contributor. Ooh. Apart from Frances Eleanor Trollope. Ooh. Her name is missing. Yeah. He's trying to bury that connection as deep as he can. But then ironically making it a lot more obvious because why else would you leave someone's name off? Mm-hmm. I mean, detectives were a new thing back then, so I don't know that they were really skilled of thinking that strategically about... <laughs> investigation <laughs> yeah maybe not double bluffing quite so much yeah um yeah so this is kind of a really uh, fast moving period of her life so she becomes uh the governess to beach she publishes her first novel and then on the 29th of october in 1866 she marries thomas adolphus in paris um he's 56 years old and according to orlando deaf at this point yeah, I've not read anywhere else about him being deaf, but I, but I trust Orlando. <laughs> Neither had I. Yeah. If we're if we're calling 45 elderly in the Victorian period, 56 is geriatric. Um Yeah. Just because of the the like the standard of living and the quality of life. Like I th- I've mentioned this many times, but the um Life expectancy for a Victorian male is 40, I believe, in much of the Victorian period. And, um, of course, this differs between the classes. So, um, yeah, I don't know where else I was going with that. but No, but you're right. He, I found a picture of him the other day, a portrait of him as a young man, and I was not prepared for it because I've only ever seen pictures of him as at least 50. And it really confused mm-hmm. me. Yeah, and I think in our in our um in episode 10, I hadn't quite realized like how old he was and like the descriptions of him around the time that they're meeting. I think most of them actually come from what I remember, which is his autobiography, his memoirs, but um like describe him as this like blonde, young, shy man when he's 56 <laughs> years old. Like if he might still be shy, but he's certainly not young. No. And she is what well, she's uh, in her early thirties, yeah. So that's that's quite the age gap there. Yeah, she's going to be thirty-one. But they seem to have a really—I mean, I'll get onto it in a bit later. But they seem to have a very equal and well-matched relationship. But it's a—it's a very classic Victorian story of the governess marrying her older—I was going to say patron or her mm-hmm. older employer. It's very Jane Eyre. It is really. Um, I mean, if he's deaf, down to the yeah. down to the young <laughs> young daughter. Oh, I was going to say down to the one missing sense, but oh yeah, that that too. 
Um, apparently, they had a rocky first year, um, which, like, all marriages do, so I'm not sure why um, people have made so much of this, but uh, Orlando provides some sort of gossipy speculation. Um, in 1867, they appeared to have been briefly separated. They publicly said little of their troubles. I'm quoting here. They may have had disagreements over the scandal surrounding Ellen Turnin and Charles Dickens, because that sort of comes to light a little bit around that time does it or am i just imagining that or i'm thinking of yeah, yeah it's roughly that yeah. time um an alternate theory is that uh, uh which was reported by isa blagden to robert browning was that theodosia trollope had allegedly cheated on thomas adolphus and beaches uh, legitimacy had come into question but i don't know why that would cause a strain on on Francis Eleanor and Thomas Adel. Yeah, and the new marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh but they were apparently reunited by August of that year. It doesn't say like when in 1867 they separated, so I don't know how many months that was, but Yeah, cuz I think Francis had some really conflicted thoughts around Ellen and Charles Dickens as relationship. Mm. But why would that affect were they in disagreement over Dickens's behavior? <laughs> or I'm just I'm just trying to figure out why these outside forces would have had such an effect on their own marriage. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to because she was I think always pretty protective of them, trying to protect their reputations, which makes sense because Dickens mm. has helped her out so much professionally. Um, and Ellen's her sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she has a vested interest in, in protecting them. But so so maybe um, Thomas Adolphus had some things to say about it that weren't appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. <laughs> I mean, he is a man who, from from the kind of anecdotes and letters that I've read, does not seem to have had a filter. So mm-hmm. I can I can believe that. So on the 3rd of December, 1870, Franco, <laughs> during the Franco-Prussian War, Thomas, Francis and Biche moved from Heidelberg in Germany, where they'd been living to Bern in Switzerland. And exactly a year later, they read of Francis' defeat in the war. I think they decide to sell their place in Italy uh, just because it's quickly losing value in the wake of the war. Yeah, because at this point, Florence has been the. Well, we went over the politics of Italy in the last season. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of political shakeups, and Florence is potentially going to become slightly less influential. So the property might depreciate in value. Mm hmm. So it seems like Frances goes back to England to stay with her mother while Thomas clears up business in Italy. And BJ just drops out of this description altogether. So, um, But she probably went with Frances, I would imagine. I know that BJ was going to a... She was at a school in London, I believe, for quite a while. And she'd stayed mm. with Anthony and Rose Trollope for quite a period of time. Okay. So I think Biche wasn't always. I get the impression that as soon as Francis stopped being the governess, 
Luce was sent off to boarding school. Oh no, she's the evil stepmom in uh, The Sound of Music. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I don't know if it's more um, pragmatic. Oh, I mean, yeah, may- yeah. yeah I, I think it's just a pragmatic decision that maybe they couldn't find a tutor, so they sent her to London or they wanted her to grow up in England. But that's the impression that I get. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, so I should... Yeah, I was just being very hyperbolic there, but... Um... No, I know, I don't know why I feel <laughs> the need to protect... Protect Francis from this. Like, to be honest, as someone who doesn't want children, I totally side with the the the, the potential stepmom figure in The Sound of Music, but... Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then we skip ahead to the 30th of October, 1873, when Frances Eleanor's mother died at Oxford. Yeah. the year, So the year before, she's returned to England to be with her mother, who's um, seems like her health is failing. So she is in Oxford with her mum when her mum dies. Mm-hmm. She gets to spend the last year with her, so that's Nice. Yeah. Um, should we move on to her later life? Yeah, so we have another big jump here. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. we're back so yeah this is another one of the things that i found when i was in the usa over the summer is the ucla have an amazing archive related to a lot of the travelic family and in the archive is a notebook of anecdotes that francis kept from january 1879 Uh, basically it's any story that she hears or thinks of that makes her laugh and she has I mean, the humour doesn't necessarily translate to the 21st century, and I suspect it was still quite strange at the time. But some snippets can give us an insight into both how her mind works and her relationship with Tom. I I feel like they have quite an absurdist sense of humour. I mean, I told one of these anecdotes to my friend the other day, and she said, I think you and Tom would have got on if you lived at the same time, because I also have quite an absurd sense of (laughs) humour. So this was the anecdote in question. On March 4th, 1879, she records that talking with Tom this morning at breakfast about the the desirability of occasionally mingling with the outside world, I said, I do not think it is well for a writer of fiction to see the... I, I said, I do think it is well for a writer of fiction to see the animals and study them a little. One need not go to extremes. No, said he, you needn't put your heads in their mouths. It's just <laughs> yeah it's it's just the this is what i mean when i say i don't get the sense that he had much of a filter because he just some of these things are things that you might think but not say but he just a he just comes out with it and then his wife thinks it's so funny that she writes it down in her little notebook yeah they're a good match <laughs> it's like the lion at the circus right so odd. Uh, I don't know. Just to think of the 
the public and that like they're some sort of circus animals. Yeah, I can't figure out whether they mean by animals, whether they mean other people or actual animals. I do get the, uh-huh. the sense that they do mean other people, which is kind of... Yeah, it seems like that. Yeah. Having said that's an area where Tom and I would have got on, we moved to an area where Frances and I would definitely not, because her letters also illustrate her political nature. And she doesn't pull any punches, especially against her kind of chosen nemesis, which is David Lloyd George. Um, He, if you're not well-versed in turn-of-the-century British politics, is a liberal. He's from Wales. He's often referred to as the goat. He's seen as very stubborn um, and in opposition to Winston Churchill for quite a while. So this is just a sidebar for another aspect of her life, is that a lot of a lot of Frances's letters, especially when she's older, are to two people. One's her nephew, Geoffrey Robinson, Geoffrey Wharton Robinson, who is Ellen's son. And the other is to Beechay's husband, Charles. I can't remember his surname, but it's always Charlie. Like the two dogs. <laughs> Another Charlie. Anyway, so this is a letter that she wrote to her nephew, Geoffrey. And she writes of the beautiful English landscape. What a noble land to be ruled by Messrs. Bontillet, Keir Hardy, Lord George, Winston Churchill, and the rest of the gang of ruffians. <laughs> so she's at least pretty bipartisan. Like That's people from most political parties at the time. Mm-hmm. And a little way down the page, she recounts with what I think is quite disturbing glee. It's someone, so this guy comes to the door and he's basically collecting the insurance rates for her servants and she's very particular to note down that it's for her servants um and for some reason they start talking about land rates this guy basically says what ought to be done is to pull out the cabinet shoot lloyd george and make kitchener dictator of england then things might go better and i feel like if there's a guy on your doorstep saying this i don't know what anyone else's reaction would be but i'd be a bit disturbed and be trying to get him get the door shut as soon as possible but Francis thinks this is hilarious and writes it down in her notebook oh my gosh I'm just having this is basically the US right now yeah it's funny how these things come back around isn't it mm-hmm. but yeah I just found it bizarre that she writes it to her nephew <laughs> and Francis and Ellen actually both attend anti-suffrage events and speeches quite a bit especially before well of course it would be before suffrage is granted because she was dead when that happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah francis and her sister ellen both attend a lot of anti-suffrage events and in another letter to jeffrey francis recounts a story that's been told to her by a friend to illustrate her objection to women's suffrage so arlie is the friend arlie in his reply to me received yesterday tells me the following story a friend of his was traveling in the tube railway in london his next neighbour was a woman who kept on defiantly humming the Marseillaise. The man was reading his newspaper and the noise worried him. He looked round at the woman, who responded by humming louder than ever. The man made no remark. Presently, they came to the station, where the woman had to alight. Just before getting out of the train, she put her fingers under the brim of the man's hat and jerked it clean off his head. If you do not see in this action a proof of woman's fitness for the political vote, what proof can convince you? And then we get Ellen's opinion as well. So 
Ellen's input is, your mother says she hopes that special carriages will soon be provided in the railways for the protection of gentlemen travelling alone. She would be glad to think that you could put, be put under the protection of the guard on a long journey. But unless the guard were a woman, how could you be sure of efficient protection? I'm really baffled by that last bit, because to me, that sounds like feminist satire. Uh-huh. But it's clearly not. Oh, so weird. I didn't think she was like a Victorian men's rights activist. Right? <laughs> oh, gosh. It's, yeah, it's really difficult to kind of try and wrap your brain around because she's also, there's some letter that she sends to, so Philip Byrne-Jones, the son of the pre-Raphaelite artist Edward Byrne-Jones, writes his letter to the Times where he puts out his view of why women shouldn't get the vote. And she writes to him and says, basically, thank you for writing that letter. I completely agree with you. Mm. Um, and this is a real source of, I'm just going to kind of go on a tangent because this is a real source of tension in my own research. Should we recover the writing of women whose political beliefs are really contrary to our own? Like, I would say absolutely not if their views were actively violent and harmful. So I am not interested in reading the work of anyone who had a membership of the KKK or white supremacists. They, for example, not complicated, don't have any interest in reading mm-hmm. them. Um, but on a lesser scale, I can't think of any people whose politics I disagree with more than those Francis Eleanor Trollope expresses in those anecdotes and letters that I've just read out. But at the risk of sounding really Bartesian, does it matter? I mean, the author is both literally and metaphorically dead. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find really complicated about reading Francis Eleanor Trollope's works is that if I hadn't read these letters first, I would have an entirely different opinion of her because her works are pretty progressive in a lot of ways. And they handle, especially issues around class and gender, really sensitively. So her first full-length novel, Mabel's Progress, Aunt Margaret's Trouble, is, I guess would be classed as a novella. Mabel's Progress is a full-length three-volume novel. And that's partly about, I think, based on her own experiences, it's about the experience of a young female actress, Mabel, and how how much she and her family are judged for being theatrical. And you're clearly, I mean, if you come to this from a sexist or prejudiced viewpoint, maybe you can sympathise with the characters who are saying that her decisions are despicable and she needs to get her act together and leave the stage. But you can also read this from a point of seeing a young woman's experience of oppressive class and gender norms. And it's really, it's a very interesting question and it's one that I'm hoping to address in my dissertation. But it's, there's another of, there's a novel she writes in 1870 called Veronica. And it's a really sensitive depiction of this young woman who's, again, she's seduced by a much older man, I think, in Veronica specifically, she's 18 and a very willful, lower middle class girl. And this 50 something year old Earl comes riding through her village. This is spoiler alert central. So 
stop listening if you plan on reading it, which I would kind of recommend because it's good reading. Um, but she's seduced by this much older man. They eventually have a really, a, a, or it becomes an abusive relationship. Um, he's very controlling of her and financially and emotionally and clearly um, kind of revels in that. But then you get these, A, it's handled really sensitively in a lot of ways. In some ways it's not, but in other ways, this is rambling. Um, But full spoiler alert, because that was low level, but after she gets out of this first one through her first husband's death, she ends up in another abusive relationship, which kind of shows the cycles of abuse that can happen is very realistic. Um. And she does end up getting murdered by her second husband, which is not ideal, but it's handled in a very sensitive way. And some of the some of the characters are basically slut shaming her and saying she wears too much. It's really funny how it's so similar. Some of the people are saying she wears too much makeup and she's a little hussy. And then some of the others are saying she's. It's basically the Victorian version of more sinned against than sinning, like she's actually a very young woman who's been taken advantage of by people with more power so that's a real contradiction because that's a really progressive viewpoint being expressed by this woman who's writing in her private letters saying women should not get the vote because we can't be trusted because we do ludicrous things like knock men's hats off their heads yeah a a question that comes up so frequently is is this particular figure um like feminist or progressive or is she just interested in the personal autonomy of herself and or these characters she's writing um and like does does it matter because doesn't it have the same effect to write these really progressive novels her life doesn't really necessarily change the way that readers experience her uh her works um unless they're listening to this and then reading them <laughs> yeah and I think, I don't know, for me, I take, oh, I think I mentioned this before, but I kind of take pleasure in the fact that I know for a fact that unless her, you know, people always trot out that line about like, it's a product of their time. And maybe if she lived now, she would have different opinions. But say she lived now and had the same opinions, I take some kind of glee at the fact that I'm pretty sure she would have hated me. There's something, I don't know, there's, there's something very satisfying about that and saying, well, actually... I'm the person who's doing sustained research into you. And maybe the only, as far as I know, the only person who's really focusing on her. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's such a weird one to navigate. And it is, I think it's reductive of us to just look into the people who are clear cut, would identify as feminists, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a fully formed argument about this. I, you know what, being being very optimistic, I'm probably, hopefully in the next couple of years, going to be developing my thesis into a monograph and you will be able to read my fully fledged thoughts there. <laughs> yes. It's just really complicated. Um, there's this real pattern, I think, of women who have led less than normative lives being super conservative. And I think there's a direct link between those things. Like, yeah, I really think it, her sorry, I really think her childhood as an actress probably is coming to bear upon this and her experience of seeing her sister be in this 
really controversial relationship probably is impacting this and probably impacted Ellen's involvement in the um, it's the National League for the Opposition of Women's Suffrage that they were a part of. Mm-hmm. And even aside from politics, like figures like George Eliot and Mary Elizabeth Braddon are very invested in female propriety, I think, precisely yeah. because of the backgrounds that they had and like their own sort of um, uh, vulnerability or... Um, yeah, uh, their their tenuous hold on propriety. Yeah, there's a really kind of heartbreaking letter that Gaskell actually writes to Elliot when she finds out about her relationship with George Henry Lewis. And she just writes, I really wish you were Mrs. Lewis. Because mm. Then she wouldn't have to worry about propriety because it would be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's always complicated even when um, the, yeah, when these um, women are virulently um, <laughs> dedicated to politics we disagree with. Um, and I yeah. also think there's some kind of, I, I don't know, I was going to say there's some kind of tendency to stick away, oh, turn away from the more complicated aspects. Like, there's a fair amount of interest in Eliza Lynn Linton, who is pretty forthright about her views being quite conservative and being against women Mm -hmm. having the vote but then these marginal figures where you're not sure where they stand aren't really acknowledged quite as much potentially yeah and i think we i think we need to explore their lives and think about why like what led them to these weirdly complicated um uh, performances of politics through their writing through their life um yeah, there's something to be learned from that, I think. Yeah. So that was the heavy, introspective, theoretical bit. If we return to some... <laughs> yeah, so there are just really a few events left that we can tell you about because so little is still known about her life. Let's see. So, in July of 1881, Biche dies in childbirth... Um, and this, combined with Thomas, Thomas's increasingly advanced age, may have encouraged them to move closer to their families um, because, um, well, I don't know, like, that's a five-year gap. Um, but they eventually uh, settled in a cottage in on the coast of Devon in 1886. So there's this sort of uh, trajectory homeward. Yeah, and I think think so i know that i think this is kind of in the same area of bristol um if any of our listeners are from the southwest and think that this is absolutely not correct then please let me know but i'm under the impression this is fairly near to bristol um which obviously is where francis milton trollope tom's mum is from so it is a kind of homecoming in a way Mm -hmm. and then to skip ahead quite a bit at some point in 1891 or 1892, Frances Eleanor participated in this really cool exquisite corpse project called The Fate of Fenella. And if you've never heard of what exquisite corpse is, it's um, it's where you collaboratively write something, be it a poem or a novel, in this case a novel, um, or maybe it's more of a novella. I haven't actually read it yet. It's on my list now. Um, where each, each author... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I have, and I would say it's a novella. It's 24 chapters, but it's 
fairly, it's a fairly slim volume. Mm. And I mean, novels at this point or novellas kind of uh, take off really in the 1890s. Um, but so an exquisite corpse is where each like multiple authors write it, um, but they don't actually look at what anyone else has written. They just sort of have a sense of like what the plot is supposed to be and write their piece sort of um, in a vacuum. And then everything is stitched together Frankenstein style into this whole um, so she participates in this project with figures like Arthur Conan Doyle, Bram Stoker, and Florence Marriott, who we should cover in the future, um, and a bunch of other active late century writers. Yeah, I think Florence Marriott is actually a really good foil for Frances Eleanor Trollope because obviously she, as you say, we should cover her soon, but she also is from an acting family and a... Is Florence Marriott an actor? Did I make that up? I'm not sure. I know less about her. Um, I, I can fact check that and let you know to edit out if possible. Uh, um, so Florence Marriott actually is from a kind of well-known family. Her dad, Frederick Marriott, is a an author before her, primarily of children's fiction, I think. Mm. And also some of the authors that uh, work on this project, some of the women authors are, um, I believe I've seen them billed as, quote, the next Mary Elizabeth Braddon in newspapers in the 1890s. Um, I have to double check that, but I, I'm pretty sure I've come across a few of their names. So uh, there could be some really cool sensational elements. And this is published um, in a modern edition by Valancourt. So you could probably get it in ebook. You can definitely get it in a paperback. Yeah, there's um, there's a couple of things. Uh, so the first thing I would note is that if this is, I think this is the edition I've got, Valancourt, and there is language that is very of the time in the very first story. It's basically the N-word appears in the very first page. and Oh, gosh. It, it's kind of uncomfortable, but the, the editors have said we're not censoring this because it is what it would have been at the time. But mm-hmm. I believe that's the only... The very first part is dodgy, I would say. The first okay. chapter. But it swiftly gets better. And actually, there's a review from... I think it's a spectator in the back of that edition. And it's really interesting because they're basically saying... This ex- this experiment is really interesting. It's not necessarily worked out that well. Um, they single out Trollope as being an example of someone who's done it well and they basically say she performs admirably with hmm. with the material she's been given but it's really it's fascinating it's a fascinating read because it's basically like every writer is trying to one up the last one and see who you know who they can murder or get framed <laughs> for murder or what it's it's like a sensation novel on top of a sensation novel on top of a sensation novel Oh, I, I need to move this up my to-be-read list stat. So the, the summary I'm seeing on the Valancourt website is, quote, an adulterous young woman, her husband's affair with an evil French temptress, a violent murder, a sensational trial, mesmerism in trances, a lunatic asylum, jealousy, revenge. Yeah, I love that they describe it as wild and fast-paced. I think I would also describe it as wild and fast-paced. So it's like a soap opera in book yeah. form from what i'm getting and uh so if that's your bag you should you should also read it let us know if you do yeah let us know what you think so on to less um interesting and amusing uh facts Sorry, left <laughs> um in on november 11th of 1892 so just over 
just under a week ago. Yeah, just under. Oh, you're well, tr- I'm trying, trying to, to think of how years. many hundreds of you. <laughs> it's it's a uh, let's see. 126. I is that correct? Yes, impressive. I mean, so I just have to say, over 126 I have years. So I was ago. born in 1992, so I just added 100 to my age. So less, less impressive. Uh, okay, that I should have just added 102. <laughs> okay, um, just over. 126 years ago uh we're all (laughs) we're in the wrong tone for this announcement um uh, thomas dies uh, at the cottage he shares with francis eleanor at and i'm gonna slaughter this name budley salterton no that was exactly how i would have said it i mean i can't okay awesome if you are if you live in that area of devon let us know um but this is why i suspected that it was near to bristol because Thomas is actually buried in a semi-famous cemetery called Arno's Vale in Bristol. It might be Hmm. just outside of Bristol. There's some interesting letters back and forth because it seems like, um, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but Francis's sister Maria is an artist living, she's still living in Florence, and she ships these mosaics back to have put into Tom's tombstone. Hmm. And basically his tombstone is desecrated several times because people want to steal those mosaics because they seem fancy. Wow. Yeah, it's... I mean, at this point, they could have moved his body by the train, though. Yeah. I know it's roughly... I mean, they're both southwest of England, Mm -hmm. so I don't know how close it is to Bristol, but it's roughly in the same area but yeah just those stories of uh the letters about the mosaics being stolen were quite upsetting Mm -hmm. yeah and then in 1895 francis eleanor publishes her last work uh, which is the biography of of fanny trollope we discussed um way back at the beginning of the year um which is partly why i think like that's such a feminist act to recover the reputation of her mother-in-law. So, I mean, another way in which she has these really conflicting actions and convictions. Yeah, and it's really, like, the reason, part of the reason why she has to recover her mother-in-law is because her husband and his brother have been shit-talking her in their own memoirs. Mm-hmm. I mean, as... Flippantly. Yeah. As we discussed, this is also sort of a selfish act in that it like really boosts her reputation. There's this sort of lineage of 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 Fanny Fanny Trollope writers. Um Yeah. So, but it still has the effect of being a a recovery. Yeah. I th- the phrase that I've used in my dissertation to describe this is it kind of earns her a seat at the Trollope table, but it still is admirable that she does it. And it's mm-hmm. also interesting that it becomes the woman's work and the work of the woman who maybe never met Francis Milton Trollope rather than her sons. Yeah. So, and then finally, on the 14th of August, 1913, so just shy of her 78th birthday by literally three days, I just realised, Francis Eleanor Trollope dies at Southsea near Portsmouth where she'd been living with her sister Ellen and if you ever want to cry in the British Library, you should find Ellen's letters about Francis's death because they are 
really moving. She, mm. you can tell how close these sisters were because I, yeah, I myself had a little bit of a weep in the British Library after reading oh. them. Oh, um, I think that's it. Yeah. Um. No. So I was just gonna say, to summarize, um, Francis. Tr- Frances Eleanor Trollope, like Walt Whitman, contained multitudes and contradicted herself, um, but led a very remarkable life. Was a world traveler, prolific writer, um, actress, failed opera singer. Um, and that's only like based on the small amount of information that we have. Yeah. And I'm... I'm hoping I've not been able to fully go through everything I found in the States and there are still more archives out there. So I'm hoping that once I do that, and I know Princeton in particular have a fair few relevant documents that I would love to get my hands on one day. Um, So hopefully we can find out some more. Mm -hmm. But I did want to say that a lot of the information that I've added to this episode has come from the the archives of four different places. So that I'm really grateful to and to all the archivists that did help me while I was researching. So they're from the archives of UCLA, the Pierpont Morgan Library and Museum and the New York Public Library and the British Library have been invaluable in helping me get this information to share with you. So just a big thank you to all of those, everyone involved. Yes, thank you. This would literally have not been possible without... Eleanor's research this summer and those archives um, because so little is known it would have been like a 15 minute episode so yeah like I said even the fact that I didn't know her date of birth until I happened to read that letter which could easily have been skimmed over because it was pretty business like it's incredible maybe one day we'll know why she needed her birth certificate (laughs) maybe I know that she was trying to apply for a pension from the Royal Literary Fund, so it may well have been that. Mm. But yeah, that's a that's an ending point. If ever there was one. Yes. So <laughs> we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the fiction episode, and um, thank you for listening, as always. Yes, thank you very much. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. John J.
music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. In 1901, Loop the Loop centrifugal... Ooh, root. <laughs> loop... <laughs> I can't talk today. 